Well, grace and peace to you, Christ Church. I trust that you have already experienced the presence of the risen Christ this Easter morning through our corporate worship and through the reading of the word and prayer. And may he continue to meet with us now as we encounter his word and hear it proclaimed. Well, it has been a strange Holy Week this year, my friends. This doesn't always happen. It rarely happens. But for whatever reason, spring break and Holy Week overlapped, which is super annoying to a preacher. Okay, super annoying. Uh, but the thing is, um, it's not the school's fault. It's Easter's fault. Because Easter's always bebopping around the calendar, isn't it? It's so annoying, right? It just happened to work out that way. And so we've had lots of people gone this week traveling, lots of our students going on adventures, even some of our college kids and whatnot. Uh, But anyway, I've decided there are two different kinds of spring breakers, all right, or vacationers if you're like an adult or something, don't have spring break anymore. There's two kinds. There are the party adventure people who love to explore and go on trips and have adventures and maybe get into some shenanigans on Easter on spring break, right? Um, And then there are the other end of the spectrum. We have the home crowd, those who relish spring break, not because... They're going to run all over the place, traveling, doing adventures, but because they get a chance to rest, to be home, to cease from the chaos, right? Maybe catch up on some Netflix and the naps, right? Right? Should we take a survey? Are you the Netflix and the napper or are you the adventure? No, I'm just kidding. Well, um, I think sometimes where we can fall on that uh, can change based on our circumstance. Like most of the time, I'm very extroverted. I want to explore and whatever, and I would definitely fall into like the party adventure crowd. Not because I'm a wild partier, nor have I ever been. I am very dull, I assure you. But I like to explore and try new things. Um, But there was one spring break in particular I remembered when I wanted nothing more than to go home. It was the spring break of my sophomore year in college, and it had been a doozy. Um, I was an RA for the first time. Do you guys know what that is? When you're like a hall mom for like 30 freshman girls who are like trying to navigate their way in the world. That can, that can take a lot of work, okay? They're kind of high need, right? And so that was like really difficult. And I was really digging into my coursework, learning how to be a pastor. And I felt like every class, I would go into class and my professors would like rip my worldview apart. And it was like really traumatic, right? And you're just come home exhausted and teary and like, I don't even understand. And then um, in the midst of that, I was struggling with mental illness, right? With depression. And I didn't have a diagnosis yet. And so I'm like, I just need to suck it up, right? Just suck it up. I can do this because I didn't know what was going on. And then... To top it off, my parents, very rudely, I might add, decided to move from Junction City, Kansas, which was approximately two hours from my college, to Sparks, Nevada, which was 24 hours from my college. Like I said, it was rude, okay? (laughs) And so that spring break, I just wanted to go home. I just wanted to be with my family. Uh, to be in a secure place away from the hubbub and expectations and the spiritually disorienting coursework and just be home, except home had moved. Home was no longer in the Flint Hills of Kansas where I went to middle and high school, and it was now in the weird, brown, dusty hills of Nevada. So when spring break rolled around, I didn't get in my car and drive the two hours home. I hopped on a plane and flew for five hours to the Reno Tahoe Airport. And I walked out and for the very first time in my life saw slot machines and women whose bodies were painted gold. It was was apocalyptic. So my parents, my brother, they pull up to the the airport and they get in the van and we go to our new house to the church parsonage there in Sparks, and I climb out of my car, out of the car, the van, and my mom says, okay, we're going to go in through the garage, and you open the garage door, and the first room that you come to is the laundry room, 
okay? And as I walked into this house, I'd never been there. I walk in. I am hit by a wave of the scent of gain detergent, and I knew I was home. <laughs> Even though I had never been there, I was home because home isn't really a place, is it? Home is being fully known and deeply loved anyway. Home is where we know we're accepted and thus are at ease. Home is where we have a deep sense of belonging. Home is where we cease our striving and rest deeply. Home is our refuge from the tumult and from the chaos that threatens to undo us. Home is where I am nourished and cared for with no strings attached. Home is where I'm with my people, you know, like my people, people that know me, who know me best. Home is being fully known with all my warts and my character flaws and deeply loved anyway. Well, the homes in which we were raised may or may not fit that description. And no home, no matter how rosy and loving, fits that description all of the time, right? But somehow, it doesn't matter if that was our experience of home or not. We know we were made for it, don't we? We long to land on the soft pillow of home, of love and acceptance without condition, of rest and security. Home is being fully known and deeply loved anyway. Well, in Scripture, the experience of home is described as life in a garden. Now, most people, even if they don't know the story of Scripture, they know about this garden, a garden called Eden, right? And as much as Eden was a place, it was so much more than that. Eden was home where we were fully known and deeply loved anyway. Eden was a way of being in the world, a way of being in perfect alignment with how we were made to live and be and interact with God and each other. In the garden, we had a clear vocation, like we knew what we were supposed to be doing with our lives. We were to be image bearers and creation tenders, kind of like the first gardeners, you might say. And in the garden, we were rightly related both to God and to each other and to ourselves. And we had that intimacy with God. And we co-labored in equality with each other. And we had a secure sense of self that was deeply rooted in our beloved being the very good creation of God. Now, in the garden, there was a complete lack of disorder and chaos, a lack of brokenness and sin. And so, in short, the garden was our heart's true home. Now, it is, in many ways, the place for which we long that we cannot name or adequately describe. It is the home for which we know we were made. It is the home for which we long. And we long for it because we have wandered from it. We have wandered and found ourselves adrift from our heart's true home. Now, when you were a kid, shopping with your mom or your dad, did you ever get distracted? You know, like by like something shiny on the shelf, something interesting, something with Ariel the Perfect Disney Princess on it, maybe? I don't know. That might be just me. And then you look up and, oh my word, your mother is gone. And all of a sudden, you are alone in the universe. And if you were me and you were a preacher's kid, you're like, my family's been raptured and I've been left behind, right? 
oh my word, what did I not confess? But let me just discuss, not a thing, but that's for a different sermon, right? Or maybe like my brother, you're like, mom's gone, sweet, more time to check out the Legos, right? But the thing is, the deeper the distraction, the more interesting the stuff that we want to check out, the harder it was to hear mom's voice calling, right? When you are utterly consumed by your own, by that sweet Lego set, right? Or the new Babysitter's Club book, or ooh, that Home and Garden magazine. It is so easy to, hmm, almost like we don't have ears. And I'm sure none of your children ever do that, right? They never get so distracted, so consumed in their own agenda and their own plan that they entirely cease to see or hear you. My children don't do that, so I can't relate to you. I'm sorry for that. (laughs) But in the same way, in the same way that we did as kids and as our kids do now, we are so easily distracted and so easily drift from home. And the thing is, when we become so entirely consumed by our own agenda, our own perspective, our own wounds, our hearing weakens. Sin, going against what we know to be God's desire for us, dulls our ears. Idolatry, putting anything before God first in our lives, plugs up our ears like a long day at the swimming pool. Rebellion, actively resisting the authority of God out of a desire to be the boss and the master of our own fates, softens the voice of God to a faint whisper. And we find ourselves adrift, disconnected from our heart's true home in God, longing for something we cannot name, but seemingly powerless to find it because we have forgotten our true home. A couple years ago, Pixar uh, put out a long-awaited sequel, Finding Dory. Anybody see it? Now, for those of you who don't have children and who have not seen this movie approximately 1,187 times like I have, I will summarize the story for you. Uh, There is this sweet little blue tang named Dory, okay? And she has short-term memory loss, right? Memory loss. And somehow, through a series of circumstances, uh, she falls into this family of clownfish, a dad and a son, because Dory has no recollection of her own family. Like, her memory is so faded, it is so disjointed that she doesn't even remember that she has a family or a home to remember, right? Until the day of the stingray migration. See, Dory goes with Nemo's class with Mr. Ray to go observe the stingrays going back across the ocean to their home. Now, Nemo, the little clownfish, he pipes up and he says, well, Mr. Ray, how did the stingrays know where to go? Well, it's simple, Nemo, says the Mr. Ray. Something deep inside calls to them. Something so familiar you have to listen to it, like a song you have always known. And just then, the rays come swimming by like a flock of birds gliding overhead, and they sing their song. Do you know it? Because, oh, we're going home, swimming to and fro. Our hearts know where to go. Beating like a drum sends us back to where we're from. Oh, we're going home. We know who we are. And in a flash, Dory knows. Home is where she came from, where she is fully known and she is deeply loved anyway. And that deep longing of knowing she was made for something, to belong to someone, rises up in her like a song she has always known. And thus her adventure begins. 
to go back home. Well, like Dory, we too have that deep homesickness, that deep longing to return to where we belong, to the garden, to our heart's true home. But because of sin, because of our rebellion, because of our wandering on our own agenda, our hearts don't always know where to go, do they? And we have forgotten who we are. Well, our resurrection passage today in John 20 takes us back to a garden. But it does not feel like the garden, our heart's true home. Contrary to our true home, this garden in John 20 is a garden that is home to a tomb. This garden represents the curse of sin and death itself. And it seems to offer nothing but a closed future with the hope of the world buried behind a stone. And it would seem to be the opposite of our heart's true home, of the garden. So let's, let's read together John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their home, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Well, at first glance, it sure does appear to be a garden of death. Because no matter how breathtaking the natural beauty, no matter the number of carefully potted plants or the well-marked paths, nothing can whitewash what this place is. It's a holding ground for bodies where the victims of the adversary of death lie. And you and I, knowing how the story ends, we read resurrection into those first verses. But those followers of Jesus... Mary and Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved, they would have done no such thing. They immediately would have thought grave robbing because that was a really big deal. Caesar had issued this edict because it was such a big deal for the whole empire saying, if you are caught robbing graves, you will be put to death. It was a huge problem. And so when they see an empty grave, they're not like, oh, resurrection. No, they're like grave robbing. Here we go. And once the grave has been robbed, what can you do? but just go back home. At least that was what Peter and John's conclusion, it's too late now, just get out of this garden of death and despair because, oh, how despair it clings. But not Mary. Mary lingers. 
Mary cannot pry herself away from the resting place of her Lord that easily. You see, we can't forget who this Mary was. It's Mary Magdalene. Do you remember? She knew what it was like to be lost, to be separated from one's true home, to be so far from God that she couldn't even hear his voice anymore. She couldn't even remember all there was to remember. Now, Scripture tells us that Mary Magdalene had seven demons. She had been enslaved by the powers of evil, the chains of the enemy. And we don't know the nitty-gritty. We don't know what role she played in her own captivity, her own sinful participation, or the level to which she was just the victim of powers beyond her control. We don't know. But what we do know is that Mary Magdalene was lost. She was adrift from God. But in Jesus, Mary had found her home. She had caught a glimpse of garden life, whole and free, forgiven and restored. And now, having witnessed Jesus' death and his body missing, the loss is all the more painful for having seen a flash of what she was made for. She was made for home. It's like tasting the tiniest taste of the richest of foods only to have your plate snatched away mid-meal. Now in John's account, the angels offer no helpful information whatsoever, but rather instead just ask annoyingly obvious questions like, woman, why are you weeping? Uh, Why do you think, heavenly messengers? They have taken my Lord, the embodiment of my heart's true home, and I don't know where to go. I don't know who I am. I am adrift. I am lost in a sea of chaos and despair and fear. Until she turns around. Verse 16, Jesus calls to her. Jesus said to Mary, or Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. Jesus says Mary's name. And she is home. I was taking the kids to school the other day, and I turned on the radio in the car. And someone, who shall remain unnamed, had turned the radio to the 80s rock station. Okay? Which is odd, because you were born in the 80s, sir. Right? Anyway, it's Josephine's new favorite station to listen to 80s rock music. Right? Go figure. So as I'm backing out of the car, or backing out of the driveway, a song started. I never heard, obviously. And um, it started weird. It started with, like, these sirens. It was like, near, 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 near. And then it goes to this electric guitar riff, and then you know it, synthesizer. Because 80s rock, you know, that's what they do. And then it got, as the synthesizer came out, then it got quiet. And it came this one solitary line. Life is a mystery. Everyone must stand alone. I hear you call my name, and it feels like home. I hear you call my name, and it feels like home. Well, I immediately went home and Googled it and discovered, oh, what do you know? It's Madonna, okay? Uh, Classic Madonna, which means it's super weird and a little creepy with some religious undertones, right? And throughout the whole song, you don't really know if she's seeking after God or something else entirely. You don't know. But you know that line? You call my name, and it feels like home. That is it. That's exactly it. You call my name. You see me. You know me. You invite me to yourself, and there I find my home. 
in Jesus' one-word response, Mary, she is free from the chains of darkness, of sin and death. And she has found her heart's true home where she is fully known and she is deeply loved anyway. All at once, this garden of death that's so symbolic of death and despair and hopelessness, of fear and anguish is transformed. This garden of death becomes the garden of life. It is Eden renewed, a place that once embodied the curse of sin and death now is the birthplace of victory over sin and death. Despair is flipped on its head and radical hope now steps in. The door of the future that was closed so tightly a moment before is blown open by the breath of God. And God's good future of redemption floods in. The pathway home is illuminated after all of our banging and thrashing around in the dark. Where we had failed, where we had failed to live faithfully into our true home, failed at our vocation to be image bearers and creation tenders, Jesus triumphed. He triumphs and he invites us back into the garden to our true home. In verse 17 and 18, having just spoken Mary's name and awakened her soul to its true home, Jesus restores to her her true vocation. He says this, he says, Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Well, there you have it. Mary is the first gospel preacher, folks. Her vocation to proclaim that she has seen the Lord, that she has encountered him and found her true home in a person, in Jesus. He said, let everybody know home is calling. And Mary did. Even though the man accused her of telling idle women tales, she embraced her identity and her vocation, responded to the voice that called her name, that felt so distinctly like home. She responded to that longing within her that felt so familiar, like a song she had always known. But what about us? How do we find our way home? You can search the world over, and in no garden will Jesus, in the resurrected flesh, stand before you and say your name like he did for Mary. So, how do we respond to the longing in our souls when our hearts don't know where to go and we have forgotten who we are? Well, in the story of Dory, the forgetful fish that lost her home, but nonetheless felt the call, the longing, that she could not name. She goes on a journey in search of her true home, but it's not an easy path. She gets lost. She gets confused. She makes the wrong call on multiple occasions and ultimately ends up alone, separated from everybody she knows and loves, with no one to turn to, with no hope of finding her family to which she belonged. She had tried. She did her best, but it wasn't enough. She failed. 
And she feels assured of her parents' anger and frustration and disgust because Dory is disgusted with herself, ashamed that she can't get it right. She can't find home. She says, I forget, I forget. It's what I do. It's who I am. No matter where she turns, no help is found. Hope seems lost. Home seems lost until this. the same except there's a rock over there and some sand this way. I like sand. Sand is squishy.
Hello. I'm sorry. <laughs> shame, all her confusion, and her doubt, Dory found home. But ultimately not because of her own wit or her own know-how or her brilliant sleuthing. She found home because her parents made a way, working tirelessly to make a way home for their wayward child. Day after day, shell after shell, hoping against hope that their beloved would respond, would remember her heart's true home. Even when she was lost, even when she was confused, even when she forgot she had a home to remember, they were at work making a way, laying out the path to lead her home. And so too for us, the wayward children of God, God is leading us home calling to us, making a way for us. Perhaps there are not seashells strewn about town, leading us to the doors of the church or to an altar for prayer or to the pages of the Bible or to the arms of a Jesus-following friend, but there are signs that whisper our name, calling us home. In our tradition, we call these signs, these whispers, prevenient grace. God's grace that goes before us, leading us home to our true home in Christ. We don't always have the eyes to see or the ears to hear how God is reaching out to us and making a way, but they're there. A word of encouragement, a, a book that captures, a song that stirs the heart, a friendship renewed, an invitation to an Easter service accepted. They are signs that are leading you home. They are shells along the route to remind you of your heart's true home, to remind you of the song that your heart has always known but forgotten, the song of the redeemed. Beloved, home is calling. The shells are laid out. The path is set before you. And let me tell you this. God is not angry at you for your wandering he is not irritated with you for your failings, and he is not tapping his foot with impatient annoyance until you get your act together. No. With joy and enthusiasm, like Dory's parents, God longs to welcome you home, to embrace you, to call you by your true name, beloved. God is looking for you. He is pursuing you. He is calling you by name. He is inviting you home where you have always belonged. Are you paying attention? Or are you so distracted by all the calls for your attention, too distracted by your own agenda, by your own way of doing things? Are your ears stopped up by an unwillingness to turn from sin and turn to God and preventing you from hearing the song of home? Are you tired of longing for something that you cannot name and hoping for something that you cannot find? Do you long to hear your true name spoken? 
to come home where you are fully known and you are deeply loved anyway. God has made a way through the loving gift of his son for us to come home. And he is leading you there shell by shell if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Now the the band is going to come up and play a song for us. And I know that when you came in, you sat on a shell and you were like, oh, what was that? And you're going to stick it in your purse or you're going to stick it in your pocket or your kid's going to take it and we're going to find it in the couch cushion two weeks from now broken into shards. But this is the thing. When you see this, you're going to remember God is calling you home. He has made a way for you to respond. And all he asks of you is not that you get your life together, not that you figure out your junk, but that you say yes. That you come home. And so as we sing this song, you're not going to know it. But as you hear the words, if you want to respond, if you want to pray where you are, if you want to come and pray up here, there's nothing magic that happens here, but it's a place where you encounter God. God is calling you home. He is welcoming you there. Are you ready to say yes? Let us pray. Father God, we say thanks. Thank you for making a way for us when we wandered and we drifted and we said, no, I'll do it my way. You made a way. You transformed the garden of death and destruction into the birthplace of life, bringing forth your son from the grave. And because he is risen, we too have new life, both now and forever. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes to see the path before us, to bear witness to the shells, the whispers of our name as you call us home. Would you give us the courage to say yes to you and follow you on the way? You are so good to us. Thank you for leading us home. Amen and amen. Would you stand for the benediction? In our church, we speak a good word at the end and ask that you extend your hands to receive this good word. Beloved, Christ Church, may your eyes be opened to the path laid before you. And may you say yes to the call to come home. Go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen and amen.